Hello, everybody. I'm Reverend Beth. Welcome to Souls in Souls. I stumbled upon an article a few years back called I'm a Process Millennial. Its author, Tristan Norman, he was 21 years old at the time. And I was just so deeply struck by his self-awareness, his commitment to consciously live his life from this place of deep open-mindedness and curiosity. Tristan has this grounded wisdom that belies his years. He's striving to live an authentic, engaged life, but he insists that he doesn't have to give up the pleasures and joys in the process. Originally from Arkansas, Tristan is currently teaching English in Japan. He hasn't published any books. He isn't famous for anything yet. But I bring you this conversation because I am convinced that Tristan is a shining light not to be overlooked. Welcome to Souls and Souls. Um, all right. Um, so Tristan, just really good to be with you today. And I, I want to jump right in to, um, to go right back in, in your life. You once described yourself uh, kind of tongue in cheek, but as, as having a, a double agent sort of mentality as a child. And um, share with us, will you, a, a bit about what was that spiritual identity growing up um, that in all its diversity? Because I think you have a pretty unique story of what shaped you or what put the roots down for you. Yeah, absolutely. So for a bit of a foundation, I grew up in the American South in a small state called Arkansas, in which you're more likely to run into a sort of evangelical Christians or uh, uh, middle of the reign Methodists than you are any of sort of like pluralistic identities, whether it's Buddhist or Muslim or agnostic or atheist. The run of the mill is that you're normally going to run into sort of more of fundamentalist Christians. And so one of the things I ran up with is I was carrying on sort of like a family dynamic or legacy into which our family was fractured based upon different religious identities and religious creeds. My grandparents were Church of Christ, which is more of a um, give or take fire and brimstone Christianity, very insular. My father was agnostic and originally turned to atheist. My aunt was Buddhist and my mom's side of the family was Lutheran. And so any family gathering we had or reunion was always a very tense situation in which if any matter brought up related to spirituality or religion or God was uh, concerned, then it just turned into a whole entire debate session. And so growing up as a kid, I sort of inherited this uh, tension within the family. And so as someone who wanted to try to not, <laughs> not have to pick sides, not have to choose sides within that, any parent or um, family member I was around, I would try to mold into that person's identity or their religious beliefs. As I was with my grandmother on the weekends, I would be very interested in Christianity and going to church and all that. It was, if I was with my father, I would be weary of talking about religious stuff and would be very on the fence about everything. And if I was with my aunt, well, we'd go to a Buddhist temple. And so I would learn about Buddhism and, you know, it was much more free, much more relaxed than any others. And so I think navigating that as a child and a young adult kind of made me adaptable to whoever I was around, but very unsure of how I actually felt about these particular issues. 
Precisely. I mean, that's where my head goes is obviously as a child, um, that molding to where you are would be a good sense, right? For your own safety and survival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you come to adulthood and how, how do you start figuring out, all right, who am I? <laughs> am, am I just a chameleon or uh, like, how do you start g- grabbing on to what makes sense for you in the spiritual realm? Right. Oh, that's the uh, big question. Um, I think the first part you have to go through is you have to go through your teenage years of angst and security and pain with those questions. You have to um, reconcile the fact because I went through a hard atheist phase. I didn't put that into my uh, paper. I went through a hard atheist phase in middle school where I was angry at religion, angry at my family and mainly angry at religion for how it had divided my family and how it had structured my experience growing up of having to be that chameleon rather than everybody accepting the family as they were rather than their religious or political ideas. And so I realized somewhere, probably I was about 17 years old, I realized I was becoming as angry as my father was at religion and boy, I have never met anybody that is as angry about religion as my father. And I sort of like made a realization of like, hey, I'm about to be going into adulthood and I don't want to carry on that anger. I don't want to carry on that stigma because if I do, that's going to lead to unhealthy generational patterns of if I have a kid one day, they are also going to feel the pressure to be for or against something or to have to decide for themselves. And so I made a conscious decision around when I was 17 or 18, I just moved in with my family, my father, uh, after living with my mother growing up. And I said, hey, I don't want to carry on this anger. Why don't I take a more constructive approach and start sampling, see what I enjoy, see what I like, see if there's something that I can admire in Christianity or admire in Islam or Buddhism or even in atheism, if there's a benevolent way of looking at atheism as a form of aliveness or a form of accepting the world. And so I went through those questions and uh, really came for the better of it that I took the time to actually ask myself those questions and explore those and to acknowledge some of my own uh, insecurities with those questions. Mm -hmm. So it was really whenever I went to Hendricks College, which is a small liberal arts school in Arkansas, where I was able to fully explore these questions. And I thought for the longest time, I wanted to be a religious studies major because these are the most fantastic questions. I mean, there's questions we carry on with us, whether we're a young child growing up or an old person in our 70s and 80s or 90s, having lived a full life, we sort of circle around and ask similar questions. And so I thought I might want to get ahead of that and start asking earlier. Wow, sounds like a bit of wisdom ahead of your years. I wish I had learned at 17 um, to change the family patterns of how I deal with my parents. I mean, come on, that's like on those. <laughs> but it hasn't that. always been successful. This is the very, you know, like, like I needed the tunnel things. You know, there's still some bickering, of but course. not as much as there was before. <laughs> well, you know, what you bring to mind for me is you know, stereotypes, I, it would be so easy to say, oh, well, Tristan is how he is because he's, you know, he's a millennial. Um, (laughs) But I go to, you know, I'm starting with, uh, 
you're from Arkansas. Like I've got some stereotypes of the South, right? <laughs> you even <laughs> articulated them at the beginning of yeah, our conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they can be so limiting. So what I'm hearing from you is that what shaped you as much as your generation, as much as the experience externally was the family dynamics, the family um, of origin that you came from and, and how you were able to take from, um, from, you know, what you name as that anger, you know, that rigidity um, and actually take from that a, a deep curiosity so that your curiosity about the world um, I'm hearing is not it's not because you're a millennial who can't commit to anything. It's, mm -hmm. it's not because of the stereotypes. Uh, what, what do you do with those? Because um, in academic world, you have a lot of interactions with people across generations. What, um, does it matter to you um, that people show up with stereotypes of who they think you are, or why they think you are, or the way you are? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, the stereotypes around Arkansas are abundant <laughs> and abound. 50% uh, are correct, 50% are wrong. Depends on the time of the year. Sometimes it's 75 and 25%. <laughs> so um, I don't personally feel much anger being judged from Arkansas. Uh, I know we have a lot of stereotypes related to racism or to our level of education or even now to uh, the coronavirus pandemic Arkansas is making national news twice a week because of how we're handling it here and so I've had the privilege to be able to travel quite a bit in uh, growing up and um, in my years in college uh, I would go out to California or I would go to New York or even go abroad to China or Japan or various other countries and people ask where I was from in the United States and I say oh I'm from Arkansas and everybody's like where is that is that next to Kansas and I'm like not at all and, and then I have to get out my map and say oh it's in between Texas and Missouri and Louisiana we have Walmart and then I always end up with we have Bill Clinton and everybody's like oh I love Bill Clinton and everybody's like oh, he was in Arkansas and so you know Arkansas is a very interesting place because here some of the issues regarding religious extremism or even social or environmental issues or even issues related to race are still very much alive and they're not resolved issues and so you have to confront them if as a um, progressive person or as a leftist or a liberal you have to confront that a lot more in your daily life than you would in new york or california and so it takes a bit more effort a bit more self-awareness and a bit more rigidity but i also think i learned a lot growing up by interacting with that uh with those, some of those barriers and some of those misconceptions and so it gave me a greater energy and a greater desire to disprove those and to act in a way that gives our kansans a better life well and it, i mean it, to follow up on that um I really hear your point. I mean, if you're surrounded by like-minded people, I mean, um, you don't have to uh, shape and discern and uh, sort out so much why you stand where you stand. Uh, right. So I'm sure that's brought more um, clarity and conviction to how you show up. 
Yeah, yeah. In the last 20 years, Arkansas has actually gotten a bit more diversity. And what, probably the, one of my greatest teachers growing up, I went to a charter school where a majority of my teachers were Turkish. They were uh, Muslim. Mm-hmm. And that was a fantastic learning experience because I got to take Turkish language, got to go to their house and study for ACT practice, got to have phenomenal relationships with people from different country, but also different religion. And so the idea of Muslim, of being a strong Muslim community in Arkansas, you wouldn't think that. And it's not humongous. It's not huge. But having those interactions as a uh, child and as a young adult really showed me that, hey, there is diversity in Arkansas if you know where to look for it. And if you deliberately seek it out and try to form a community with them and try to understand them and try to really see them as they are and also see their experience as being isolated in a place like Arkansas, but be deliberate in making those bridges, you may come at the end of it with a stronger sense of identity and a stronger sense of self. And, you know, one thing why... um, friends used to always say, he's always said that curiosity is liberation, right? Mm-hmm. The more curious you are about things and the more internal drive you have to go and ask and seek answers to those questions, the more you'll grow as a young person, regardless of whether you're millennial or even if you are an older person, their 60s or 70s, there's no right or wrong time to ask those questions. In fact, my Church of Christ grandmother, who was very, very dogmatic growing up, she came to curiosity about other cultures and religions through Netflix of all places. She she calls me now, she's like, I just watched this fantastic movie about India and I never knew this about the caste system or about Hinduism or, wow, this is amazing. I watched this internationally, watched a Korean film the other day and I was like, why are you watching Korean films? She's just like, oh, I want to relate to you a little bit. And I'm just like, that was a fantastic thing because she's in her seventies and eighties. She has no reason or she could have her life decided, but she chooses to learn more about other places. For that, I'm very proud of her. And that, you know, our Kansans can get a bad rap, but there are still very good people here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. Um, and also just how how that unexpected curiosity in another generation can uh shake us up, right? In terms, oh, I thought your thought your story was all done. I thought I thought I knew every aspect of you. Um that deep curiosity I know for you gets expressed in um a desire for community. And like I know community is a key piece for you um, Mm. when you think of your philosophical point of view or what matters in your life. Um, So I'm just interested to hear more um you know, we're, we live, you and I both, in a culture that has for many generations been so focused on the individual. Mm. So even as we've participated in religious expressions, that cultural societal piece of the end of the day, it's all up to you. Uh, do you feel like it's a bit countercultural to lift up the idea that communities where it's at that's where we're changed that's where we make the biggest contribution that's the place where we grow um do you see that as a shift or a necessity um as we look towards the future oh that is a that's a big question because you uh community has always always been the answer throughout history this rampant individualism is only 
really quite recent if mm-hmm. you really think about it. And you could say it's capitalism, you could say it's consumerism or, you know, uh, participation trophies, whatever. But this idea of uh, individualism or rampant individualism is fairly new. And it, it has one way that it's very empowering and that you could determine your own identity outside of a community. But at the other end, I think it's interesting that in individualism, you can find yourself and then find yourself within others in a community. Mm. And so there's like a push and pull and by which the more you self-actualize yourself as a young person or as an individual, the more you are drawn to a community of other people. And so this in this form of self-actualization, self-actualization or a life journey or exploration, you draw yourselves to or you have a lure towards a community with others, regardless of where you're at. And particularly in my case, I enjoy being able to feel connected to people wherever I go, regardless of if I'm in the United States or if I'm studying abroad in China, which was a really interesting experience. I didn't think I would have such a community of people with in China as an American during the Trump years, but they welcomed me with open arms and I had a phenomenal experience. And so I don't think community as being counterculture, I think community as being something that is intrinsic to all of us. And uh, we know this deep down, regardless of whether we self-isolate or we, uh, especially during the pandemic years, we've seen that community is everything and that uh, put in our homes and having to self-isolate and be disconnected from the people we love or the community events that gave us purpose. I don't know about you, but the moment I got my vaccine, I was like, I can breathe again. I can go do all this wonderful stuff. My friends asked if I wanted to go to an antique shop and grab snow cones. And I'm like, before I would have said I was too busy. I have too many papers to write all this. And then they're like, want to go and absolutely do nothing in public. And I'm like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because it, you felt connected to something again. And I think I think the pandemic has really shown how important that is for all of us to feel connected, to feel held, and to feel a part of something. And sometimes we find these communities locally, but often than not, we find them through technology, through social media. And now that's kind of a counter thing. Most people say social media is divisive, but also in some ways, digital technologies have connected us together in Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams or whatever in ways we never thought possible. And so I think you can have a digital community, especially a digital community of people all around the world, if you want to. Yeah. Well, and... um you know, when we talk about the impact of uh, this pandemic, uh, I'm so keen to know who we're going to be. And Mm. I I feel like we have a long way to go before we actually figure out who are we on the other side of this. Um, But I do think what you say, you know, the snow cones, that relishing in the simplest things of life um that's really come to the the fore for us and i can just picture your delight and finally i can, might not even like a snow cone but i'm i'm so excited to go and have part a of this. Snow cone. Yeah, yeah this religious snow cone experience i'm so happy <laughs> this is a possibility uh, um I want to shift a bit to, you know, I know that you have found, I don't know if it's a home, but you found life in this idea of process philosophy. Um, And, you know, we could get into a really big um, philosophical discussion, but 
a couple of the words that I know come from that, that you wrote about many years ago are justice and ecstasy. Um, so those are, you know, those are words that through a process point of view that are, um, talked about, I want to zero in on this word ecstasy, um, because you talk about it being, you know, for your generation, the coming together of the justice and ecstasy being, I don't know. I mean, I'm putting words into your mouth, but almost a spiritual experience. It's the place where it's at. It's the place where amazing stuff happens. Um, you might want to define justice, but I really want to know what what you mean from a process point of view. Ecstasy. ecstasy. What is yeah, it? yeah. So ecstasy is really in tied, at least for me, with a lot of the writings of like mystical theologians. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with Meister Eckhart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll quote John O'Donohue, who's this Irish theologian and poet that I absolutely adore. He said, you know, uh, my, he quoted Meister Eckhart as saying, Gott wird und Gott unfiert, which God becomes and God unbecomes. And mm-hmm. closer that you get to God, the more it ceases to be God and it's just your understanding of it. And so uh, I think in this ecstasy, you could call it God or you could call it aliveness or creative uh, transformation or a connection to feeling interconnected to the world around you, whether that's through feeling or emotions or in ideas, I find that absolutely enrapturing um, mm-hmm. because it really does center you in the fact that you have this unique life and this unique story and you could have just have easily not exist or not have had that conversation with this person or not have gone to that social justice rally or to a Black Lives Matter protests. Mm-hmm. But you did, and that intentionality and that acting for the sake of the world and for the sake of your own uh, enjoyment and for the sake of others, or even in the sake of justice, there's a beauty in that, in that, you know, whenever you act into the world, you create a new world. And that, to me, is a form of ecstasy, because you have every single moment to create something new. And I think the more engaged you are in the world, the more engaged you are with this mystical form of ecstasy, which I think is really exciting. Mm. So, you know, uh, Meister Eckhart would say something similar or Khalil Gibran, which is one of my favorite Lebanese poets. He's, I, I read The Prophet whenever I was 18 years old and that, that book is still one of my favorite books of all time. It really changed me as a person. And mm-hmm. so, I like to be reminded by these writers, or even if it's a uh, Rumi, that mm-hmm. you know there is a time to uh, drink the wine and enjoy the taste and to enjoy life, and then there's times to act to ensure that everybody else also enjoys their life, and so that's where the justice comes in, mm-hmm. and that you're able to act for other people as they are and not as you would want them to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you find um, in those places of justice seeking, you actually find the ecstasy. Uh, I mean, there's the coming together in a way sometimes of those pieces. Yeah. Well, oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I, I don't know if everybody felt the same way in Canada, but whenever, <laughs> 
Biden was put into office <laughs> and everything, there was a rush of just tears and celebrations all around the world. Yeah. Like, I don't want to speak for all of Canada, but we might have felt the same yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to put that into perspective, uh, around the world, there was so much celebration. They haven't had that much celebration since VE Day and World War II. And so if that puts that into perspective, this national party, so to speak, all around the world of just relief. And now we can act on the climate crisis and now there won't be so much chaos and United States might actually get their stuff together. That was a, I, I just remember feeling so connected to everybody. And I'm like, wow, it's finally over. And so I, I, I remember that moment as being a moment of, um, <laughs> ecstasy so to speak of <laughs> social and justice ecstasy I'm like oh my god this madman's out of the office but now there's hope again and so uh, I think moments like that are just very telling and very uh, very important well, let's talk about hope. Um, you know, one of the key uh, tenets of process thought is, is in fact that the past doesn't determine or predetermine the future, that in each moment we um, are Lord invited um, to the next best choice before us. But uh, man, there's a lot going down in the world today that could leave a person feeling pretty hopeless, that could, uh, could lead one to say, actually, we've got a pretty good track record as humanity of making poor choices for the earth, um, for the mm. economics of society. Um, you've got a lot of life ahead of you, hopefully. How do you hold on to hope in the midst of a world that sometimes seems to be unraveling? Oh, uh, yeah, this is a also a very good question. Um, uh, last September, I was accepted to work as a United Nations intern in the Department of Economic and Social Affairs. Um, I had interviewed one of the UN chiefs for my thesis, and we became fast friends over the summer. And he's like, hey, I'll write the reference letter for you to come and work in my department. But he's like, you're a young person, maybe you would like this role. And I got put in the youth unit. Uh, within that de uh, department. And it was sort of the focal point of all the youth issues that were facing young people around the world. So we deal, dealt with issues related to youth mental health and well-being, to climate change, to uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on education or labor markets, or pretty much anything to do with how these crises are in impacting young people. We were the focal point. We were the channel. We tried to have the answers. We researched it. We did our statistics, we had our dialogues and invited young people to share their voice. And I slowly realized that I there was two interns in the apartment, in the department, in the youth unit. And uh, I asked her, you know, oh, how old are you? And she's like, oh, I am 34. And I'm like, oh, dear, I thought you were in your 20s. And then I realized I was the only young intern in, <laughs> in the youth department having to answer all these questions about young people in this crisis. And I'm like, oh my, <laughs> I don't feel prepared to answer all these questions or to have to think about all the challenges that are facing my generation. Because I think in the end, you have to be hopeful, but you also have to be realistic and to realize that there's no one else that comes after you, at least when I'm speaking of my generation, mm. and that you have this limited window 
to act on issues like inequality, act on issues like climate change, uh, act on issues of like creating a better society after the pandemic and building back something better. And whether you are a big United Nations sustainable, sustainable development goals person, or you are working within your community, or you want to be a lawyer or a policymaker or a doctor, mm. that as a young person now, you realize you have a special responsibility to create a better future because that's it. And uh, the hope comes with a healthy amount of responsibility. And so it's not that we're all blind optimists or idealistic. We have plenty of reasons to be disconcerted or to not act on these things. But, you know, we have to. And those are the cards that we've been played. And so for my children or the children of, my gen uh, of our generation, we have to hand them something better. And that is incumbent on us to think creatively, to design something better and to really act for the world that we want to create. And so in the particular case of the climate crisis, you've seen all around the world of the sunrise movements and the uh, experience of Greta Thunberg and um, all these youth climate activists. And it is the most brave thing in the world. I think, especially working in climate activism like myself, I think we are all insane. Like, I do not know where we get our energy, where we get our determination, where we get our hope from, because it's <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's something that is very cerebral climate change. You, 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 uh, it, there's like a mental block if you work too, if you think too long about it. You're like, I can't even imagine this being a possibility or this, uh, the magnitude of this challenge. And yet you see these young kids, you see these children, sometimes even as young as six or seven years old, going out there and holding their lawmakers accountable or taking various actions in their day-to-day um, -day life to talk about this issue. And so I think we're incredibly brave, but with that bravery comes that hope, that hope that despite whether if it leads to anything at all, we decided to act in that time. Mm -hmm. And I, I always go back to Albert Camus, who I absolutely adore, mm -hmm. uh, there's a story of the myth of Sisyphus where he's pushing the rock, a rock up a hill only for it to fall back down again. <laughs> and so I always put it in the perspective, like, even if it amounts to nothing and the climate crisis does have a human, humongous impact on the world, I would still be there pushing that rock up or we would still be there as young people still pushing that rock up because uh, we appreciate the world that we have been given and we care about our communities and we care about our futures together. And so regardless of what happens, we're still going to be pushing that rock and acting. Well, um, I wanted to ask you if I thought, if you thought um, we'd let you down, <laughs> all the other generations that are still no, here to blame. No, no, no. <laughs> Here's the, here's the wonderful thing about young people throughout generations is that every young person of every generation inherits a world they have not created. Yeah. That is the one fundamental truth. You may have inherited a world that just recovered from the uh, toils of uh, Vietnam War, World War II, or even before that, World War One, or mm. you can go all the way back. And so it's not that any generation is at fault. It's that we haven't come over the distinctions of like, this is not a generational battle. This is an intergenerational challenge. And so it doesn't matter if you are at the end of your life or if you're just beginning it or you're straight in the middle, uh, climate change will affect you all. 
And there's not a time to assign blame. It's more a time to how can we actually think about these things in a productive way and to um, act in the interest of people that we've never met and we probably never will meet. And that's, that's the question. Yeah, I love that question of how do we um, become good ancestors, right? That that should be how we're thinking is uh, how how do we become the good ancestors for generations we'll never meet? So I resonate yeah, with good that. ancestors and yeah. we'll also live the good life that you have right now. I mean, you know, you can't go every single day and be like, I'm going to act on climate change every day. You're going to be exhausted. Mm-hmm. You have to go and dance. You have to go and listen to music. You have to go to a barbecue or to a concert or go enjoy your life because in enjoying your life, you'll feel the energy to appreciate it by doing things like that. And so Absolutely. you don't want to burn out. You definitely don't want to burn out. And so <laughs> like in pandemic, I think we are all burnt out a little bit, but- uh, Count me I, in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. looking forward to more barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a solidarity in all feeling that same sort of blah and that we all feel this way, but we all can boost each other up and do kind deeds. And really, even if you have to return back to those religious questions or those uh, spiritual questions, have those questions embody a sort of action, embody a sort of perspective or stance that does make you want to do these kind of works related to justice or to just building your own community after the pandemic. And I think that is so important. Well, and that's where I wanted to end. I mean, I wanted to go back to the religious element, um, you know, we could debate whether organized religion has totally missed the mark. <laughs> but I think my, my, the heart of my question to you is, um, what, what is your message for organized religion? Is there a way for those who are rooted in traditions that let's admit have at their core, in spite of their many faults, um, this call to love, this call to justice? Um, Is there any hope um, for us? Is there something we need to be doing, those of us um, who are still uh, (laughs) committed to to those ancient communities? Um, You have some wisdom? Uh, I thought well, one uh, I'm, that's against organized religion as a young person. I know a lot of uh, young people are, uh, but I don't see the issue in having your community or having your uh, having religious ceremonies or anything like that because mm-hmm. that provides meaning and community and purpose to a, or uh, to a community of organized religious believers. I would say the fundamental thing that would really inspire young people, especially if they're in that spiritual quest of exploring different, their identity, their Mm -hmm. religious identities by sampling, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or agnosticism or Mm Baha'i or um, any sort of uh, different religious or spiritual belief uh, that you really develop a interfaith quality to your work. And I mean, interfaith mm-hmm. in that you may have a mosque in your community, you may have a, uh, a Buddhist temple, you may have a community of atheists, you, you never know, you may have a Hindu community or a Sikh community or a Baha'i temple there. Mm-hmm. And I would say make deliberate action in bridging, creating those bridges and creating those dialogues and showing that I may have my organized religion in my house of worship or my place but I have space at my table for you, though you are different from me. 
And I think for young people, we admire that pluralism. We embrace that that pluralism and that uh, sort of like plurality of identities. You know, a lot of us might have Muslim friends or friends mm-hmm. from um, that are um, are Taoist or Buddhist. And so, seeing organized religion take that deliberate step. I think might be able to bring a lot more young people back into your communities. And because you've made a step to not be insular, but to embrace other communities and, I, you know, a community of communities, so to speak. And I feel like that enough of itself takes a lot of intention and effort, but also could really benefit your congregation or your community, because you have to ask your same questions that we've been asking ourselves. You have to deconstruct, but also construct. And so where are my barriers? Where are my walls? but also where are my gates and where are my openings? Mm -hmm. And so you can find commonalities through sports or through social justice activities or even a potluck. It doesn't have to be anything big, (laughs) but we're all drawn to community. Like I said, even though we're individualistic, even though young people are individualistic and want to create their lives, they're in their twenties. Well, you know, we got to go to the bar or got to go through the, you know, grab coffee or whatever, go to that concert. There's also that drawing to reconnect with our younger selves, especially that's something I've realized during the pandemic years Mm. that, gosh, I don't remember who I was a few years ago. There's like a mental block. I don't know what it is. It's pandemic amnesia, but I'm slowly each day remembering aspects of myself that I've lost. And I think that is very telling for a lot of young people as they're somewhat nostalgic for what life was like before. And if they were part of that community, part of that religious community, they may be nostalgic to rediscover it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say, yeah, interfaith all the way, (laughs) because that's the future of how things are going to go, especially if, you know, unless you want the alternative, which is silos and extremism and all that. You're going to have to make an effort. <laughs> we've seen that in the United States. There's a tons of silos and extremism and, uh, you know, fundamental evangelism that has made its way into politics. And that is a dangerous mixture and uh, something that we can't abide for future generations. Mm, wow. Well, Tristan, thank you for bringing your your whole self uh, to the virtual table today. I've really appreciated being in conversation with you. Thank you so much for uh, having me and all that. You've been listening to Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. We're so glad to be back with you for season two, where I'll be in conversation with mind and heart-provoking speakers on topics like artificial intelligence, climate change, beauty, and more. These heart conversations for your soul can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, like, and share, and visit us at canadianmemorial.org slash podcast to learn more about Souls in Souls. Until next time.